Welcome to the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. The narrated Puritan is just a present name that I've given to my ministry of narrating Puritan and Reformed books, which now has begun in a 36th year. I wanted to do a little introduction about how I got to the present subject that I'm going to read this morning. Last week, I attended a module at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary here in Owensboro, Kentucky, with a number of students who were coming to hear the teaching of Dr. Thomas Ashgall on the subject of preaching. And there was a book table in the back, and of course, I'm always enamored by looking through them, though I've seen a lot of what's already out in print, but because there was a special on two books, one of them that is before me, I was able to get it for a discount, and so I decided to start reading what was called Reform Preaching by Joel Beakey. And I always enjoy the footnotes of somebody like Dr. Beakey because there's so much historical analysis and there's a bibliography and these type of works that are unequaled in most of the books that are printed in our day. And I saw this description. It actually came from a book called Notes on the Principles and Practices of Baptist Churches released in the year 1857 by Francis Wayland. Well, I know enough about Dr. Francis Wayland, who was the president of Brown University in the midst of the 19th century, and I knew that there were some concerns that people have had about him, but at the same time, I always had respected him because he wrote the official two-volume biography of the missionary Adoniram Judson. But I was so enamored by what Wayland was able to do in defining the preaching, the experimental preaching of our particular Baptist fathers who were in the Puritan tradition. As usual, I went to books.google.com to see if I could find the book in question, and I was able to find it. And as I started to read it, The beginning of it was very disappointing to me. So I'm not making a recommendation of Francis Wayland per se, but I am so interested in what he says about the preaching of our particular Baptist forefathers who were in the ministry and what their preaching was like, such as Hansard Knowles, Benjamin Keach, Nehemiah Cox, John Spilsbury, that I want to read what he wrote here because I find it is very edifying. In chapter 8 of the book that I had given the title for that Dr. Beakey quotes, the subtitle is Ministers Decreasing in Number. There's a lament that there aren't good preachers like there were in a bygone day. So let me begin reading this in probably the next chapter because it is so edifying and I'm so much in agreement with it. And at the same time, I was amazed at who the author of it and compiler of it was. But nevertheless, it is very edifying. And so I present it to you, the listeners of this podcast. It may be objected to what I have written that this is all very well. 
but that it would be impossible ever to induce men to enter the ministry if we subjected them to so severe a trial. Well, what trial is that? A serious examination as to whether, in fact, they were called to the ministry. But a quote, this deserves a moment's consideration. In the first place, I would ask, what is the way of supplying the church with ministers which the Lord has appointed? It is probable that he knew the necessities of his church as well as we do and was able to foresee what would be the best manner of supplying them. Do we find in the New Testament any of those requisites enumerated which many persons now deem indispensable? By what right do we establish rules which Christ has not established? But let us turn to the facts. For about 30 or 40 years, we have changed our views on this subject. Has the supplies of ministers increased? Has it not sensibly diminished? Nay, has it not so diminished as to cause the gravest apprehensions for the safety of the denomination? Formerly, we were obliged to repress the earnestness with which men were pressing into the ministry. Now we are unable with every inducement that can be presented to urge men into it. The number is diminishing and men frequently ask, is the quality improving? Are they getting better? Are they more qualified for the ministry is a question. It is said that this deficiency in pastors is owing to the fact that we have but few revivals now in comparison with former years. But why have we had such few revivals? We are under a system which was intended to increase the efficiency of the ministry. It would seem then that while we have been laboring to improve the ministry, we have decreased its number and diminished its power. We are obliged to call in the aid of culpators to do its work. Now, a culpator was a person who went from house to house and he'd be selling Christian books such as An Alarm to the Unconverted by Joseph Hallane or A Call to the Unconverted by Richard Baxter and other such works that were in those days used as tracks for the conviction of unconverted people and to bring them into the kingdom of God. And these are increasing in all denominations. This leads me to refer to a peculiarity which has until lately distinguished our preachers. They aimed at the immediate conversion of men. The Baptists of the time of Charles II were so peculiar in this respect that they considered their practice of sufficient importance for insertion in their confession of faith. Now, that's what's so interesting about this, their confession of faith, and yet the very first chapter of this book says, Francis Whalen, Baptists have no confession of faith. That's what keeps them unified. Our confession of faith it's the New Testament. Well, that kind of thinking is an abomination, and it shows how far the Baptist churches had declined by the 1850s, and yet the good thing was that was the time in which Southern Baptist Seminary, which came to Louisville, Kentucky, was started up, and they did start to return to these old confessions. The quotes the London Baptist Confession of Faith in Article 25, which asserts, quote, the preaching of the gospel 
to the conversion of sinners is absolutely free, no way requiring is absolutely necessary. It may happen, and it commonly does happen, but it's not an absolute necessity. Any qualifications, preparations, or terrors of the law, but only and alone the naked soul, a sinner, and an ungodly one, to receive Christ crucified, dead and buried and risen again, who is made a prince and a savior for such sinners, as through the gospel shall be brought to believe on him in quote. And this is a quote from Hansard Knowles Society's publications, page 37 of Baptist Confessions. But I'm quoting, from the manner in which our ministers entered upon their work, it is evident that it must have been the prominent object of their lives to convert men to God. They did not enter the ministry as a learned and respectable profession, as a place of literary leisure. Now, what do they mean by literary leisure? We commonly call it the ivory tower where we're able to get away from everybody, lock ourselves into our own world of reading these old books that are sitting on our shelves. And again, to quote, as an introduction to a professorship or presidency of a college or to a secretaryship or agency of a society, but because they believed that they were called to the work of turning men to God, nothing but just such a conviction would have drawn them aside from their previous pursuits. Hence, they labored directly for this object, the great doctrines which they preach were the depravity and moral helplessness of man, his just condemnation under the holy law of God, the way of salvation by repentance and faith on the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and these were always followed by earnest entreaties to their hearers to flee from the wrath to come. They preached with the hope that at every sermon some would submit himself to Christ, and unless this result followed their labor, they felt that they had labored in vain. They had little to do with the public mind or the benefits which Christianity confers on our civil institutions or with any of the common means so frequently resorted to to render the gospel of Christ respectable. There were perishing sinners before them. They held in their hands a sovereign remedy for the fatal disease which was consigning them to destruction. They held up the disease and the remedy and besought men in Christ's stead to be reconciled to God. They were generally not ashamed, though held in low esteem by the learned and the wealthy, they were wise in turning men to righteousness. In their preaching to Christians, there was, I think, another peculiarity. They were remarkable for what was called experimental preaching. And I think those two words, of course, grabbed the interest of Dr. Joel Beakey in a book called Reformed Preaching, or Proclaiming God's Word from the Heart of the Preacher to the Heart of His People. And that's why he quotes it in his book. 
They explain much of the exercises of the human soul under the influence of the truth of the gospel. The fillings of a sinner while under the convicting power of the truth. The various subterfuges to which he resorted when aware of his danger. The successive applications of truth by which he was driven out of all of them. The despair of the soul when it found itself wholly without a refuge. Its final submission to God and simple reliance on Christ. The joys of the new birth and the earnestness of the soul to introduce others to the happiness which it is now for the first time experienced. The trials of the soul when it found itself an object of reproach and persecution among those whom it loved best. The process of sanctification, the devices of Satan to lead us into sin, the mode in which the attacks of the adversary may be resisted, the danger of backsliding with its evidences and a means of recovery from it, the dealings of God with the soul in bereavement and disappointments, the hiding of his face in order to confirm and strengthen it and wholly unwavering trust in him, the comforts of religion and sickness, poverty, persecution, and death, the nearness of Christ to the soul when all earthly aid was withdrawn. These were some of the staple subjects on which our experimental preachers loved to expatiate. They were obliged to look into their own hearts and the hearts of others for subjects. And these were the subjects they found there. They looked into the Bible, and there they saw all this in abundance. They found a response when they presented these truths in every devout soul. Christians, when faith thus answered to faith, were drawn very near to each other. They conversed on these subjects whenever they met. They even use a term to distinguish real Christians from formalists founded on the consciousness of these exercises. Thus, it was very common to hear it about man designated as an experienced person or an experienced Christian by way of distinction from a mere professor or a formalist. The mode in which preaching was designated was derived from these ideas. Men did not speak of a sermon as an intellectual effort, a splendid performance, a beautifully written discourse, but they said that their souls had been fed by it. They had derived food for many days. They had treasured up the truth for months. They had been delivered from the snare into which they were nearly fallen. They were quickened to new Christian effort. These remarks show the tendency of the class of preachers, which seems now to be passing away. Chapter 9, Effects of Preaching on Experimental Religion on Saints and Sinners, Discriminating Preaching Necessary to the Success of the Gospel. It will at once be apparent the peculiar results must have followed from preaching of the character to which I have alluded in my last chapter. In the first place, religion was brought home in a special manner to the business and the bosoms of men. 
The preaching told of the workings of the inner man. An inner man is always at work. It gave to the Christian matter for reflection in the store, in the shop, and in the field, and hence kept the subject alive in his thoughts. It formed topics of conversation. I remember well the meetings of Christians at the house of my father, who is then a Baptist deacon. The conversation was almost uniformly on an experimental religion, the trials and supports, the hopes and the fears of the Christian soul were matters of everyday thought, and long evenings were spent in the recital of them. Again, preaching of this kind revealed a broad distinction between the Church of Christ and the world. When the exercises of a Christian soul were unfolded, and every Christian soul responded to them, an impenitent man could not conceal from himself the conviction that here was something of which he knew nothing, and that these disciples of Jesus were living in a world is different from his, as light is from darkness. His conscience was kept alive by the consciousness of this difference. He stood before himself as a convicted man, and he could not shake off the conviction. There is in such cases also a little need of argument on the evidences of revelation. The Church of Christ, when in earnest, has a witness in itself. The worldly man sees and feels the present reality of religion. And what has a present reality must, of course, have a foundation. The style of preaching had also a great power in arousing those who had settled down in a false hope. Men may believe everything after the most orthodox creeds and yet be wholly uninfluenced by the gospel of Christ. Their hurt has been healed slightly, and while they have the form of godliness, they are aliens from the commonwealth of God's spiritual grace. When such persons come under preaching which delineates the workings of piety in the human heart, they see that they have never known anything of this kind of religion. They see also that if religion be a reality, it must produce just such fruits, fruits of which they are perfectly ignorant. Hence it was very common for us to receive into our churches persons who had for many years been professors of religion, but who never knew the plague of their own hearts until they heard the truth presented in the form that was customary among us. But it will naturally be said that this sort of preaching must have been distasteful and almost incomprehensible to the men of the world, intelligent and irreligious. They would never come to hear sermons on experimental religion and earnest calls to repentance. To gain these, we must of necessity modify our preaching and deliver discourses in which both church and congregation will readily sympathize. This is frequently said, and it certainly seems very reasonable if you look upon it from the point of view, which many good men assume. This plan has to be a considerable extent prevailed in all denominations. You hear a sermon from almost any pulpit, and hearken to the comments made on it afterward, and you will find men who do, and men who do not profess religion, 
criticize it in the very same terms. The language, the plan, the delivery, the imagery are the matters of conversation. The religion of it is equally acceptable to both parties. But let us look at this a little. Is not religion a serious reality? Does not the Bible always affirm that there is an inconceivable difference between the character of him that fears God and him that fears him not? That the desires and affections, the hopes and the fears, and the principle of action of the one are utterly unlike those of the other? Now let us suppose any other assembly to be convened composed of two parties as different from each other. The New Testament represents believers and unbelievers to be. Suppose one part of an audience to be men professing to be thoroughly instructed in practical chemistry and the rest wholly ignorant of that science. What sort of a lecture on chemistry would that be which the ignorant understood just as well as the learned and of which the one party was just as well able to determine the merits of is the other. Common sense would at once decide that those men who professed to be learned chemists really knew very little about it, and that the lecturer, whatever might be his eloquence, was not likely by his labors to advance the knowledge of his science. Or take a still more analogous case. Suppose an audience during our revolution who have been composed of thoroughgoing royalists and ardent Republicans, and that a speaker were to address him on the claims of the Parliament and the rights of the Crown. Were he like to exhort them in such a manner that both parties liked him equally well, and that both sympathized with him and all his sentiments? What progress would he ever make in bringing back his revolutionary fellow citizens to obedience? And what reward would he expect from the master who had sent him? An audience is always composed of the friends and the enemies of God, of the servants of Satan and the servants of Christ. The minister is a messenger of God sent to bring back their allegiance to the lost children of men. If he deliver his message in such a way that both parties like it equally well, and equally sympathize in all its sentiments, he must talk of generalities that mean nothing. Or the trumpet must give an uncertain sound so that no one will prepare himself for battle. But it will be said, are we then to drive away all but the children of God? I reply, is there any Holy Ghost? If we preach in such a manner that the disciples of Christ are separate from the world, prayerful, humble, earnest, self-denying, and laboring for the conversion of men. The Spirit of God will be in the midst of them, and souls will be converted. The thing will be noised abroad. There is never an empty house where the Spirit of God is present. You could not keep men away from a church where souls were asking what they should do to be saved and where converts were uttering their newborn praises of the king of Zion. There are certainly these two views to be taken of this subject. There are two ways of seeking to fill our houses of worship. Which is to be preferred? Which looks most like fidelity to the master?
end quote, Francis Whalen. So let me end this podcast by quoting part of the blurb on the cover of Joel Beakey's book called Reform Preaching. Preaching today all too often, often tragically misses the point. We've all heard sermons that sound more like a lecture, filling the head, but not the heart. And we've all heard sermons tailored to produce an emotional experience, filling the heart, but not the head. But biblical preaching both informs minds and engages hearts, giving it the power to transform lives. By the Spirit's grace, biblical preaching brings truth home from the heart of the preacher to the heart of the hearer." Thank you for tuning in to the Men of God podcast. This is a narrator from the narrated Puritan podcast on Sermon Audio, Tom Sullivan. 